is Cultured Hollywood for Smart People for Wednesday, January 15th, 2020. I need to get used to saying that. Um, (laughs) I'm Nico. I'm your host. We're talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them, as we always do on this program. Welcome back on this fine Wednesday. You know, folks, I have this feeling, this nagging sensation, and I don't know if this is true or not. You'll be the judge of that. Um, but my instinct is telling me that the show has been awfully negative lately. And that's not because I'm a particularly negative person. I think if you know me in real life or if you listen to any podcast I've ever participated in, you would think of me as a fairly positive person, always with a smile on my face, a positive outlook on things, a perspective that tends to focus on the rosier details of life and not the more corrosive details. And I think that's a good thing. I don't know. I tend to focus on my side of the fence rather than the other side because here, the grass is green enough for me. You know what I'm saying? Well, lately on this program, I have skewed negative. I have uh, opted for the sort of crotchety old man routine rather than the, eh, pop culture is cool routine. And I don't know which one you come for on this podcast, I think uh, it says a lot about you if you'd rather listen to me ranting about my displeasure with some stupid award show nominees or if you're coming on here for some recommendations and some positivity and glowing reviews of some television show I like. I don't know. I mean, here's how I think about it, right? I grew up listening to sports talk radio. My father used to listen to Mike and the Mad Dog every single day, still listens to Mike Francesa on WFAN in New York. Um <laughs> But the whole philosophy behind a show like Mike and the Mad Dog is the show is at its best when New York sports is at its worst. You don't listen to Mike and the Mad Dog after the Yankees win the World Series. You don't listen to Mike and the Mad Dog after the Giants win the Super Bowl or the Rangers win the Stanley Cup or God help us, the Knicks win the NBA title, right? You listen to Mike and the Mad Dog when Ben McAdoo benches Eli Manning. When the Knicks trade Chris Stapp's Porzingis. When the Mets lose in the World Series. That's when Mike and the Mad Dog is firing on all cylinders. Because first of all, listening to a guy get angry on the radio is really funny. And it will never be unfunny. But also, there's a sort of therapeutic element to it. Chris and Mike have a tendency to uh, voice the frustrations of the everyman. Voice the frustrations of the average New York sports fan. It's catharsis. It's refreshing. And it's a way of, I guess, finding your footing in an often chaotic sports environment. Anger can be a very satisfying thing. And I guess that is not always, but often the philosophy that I follow on this show. It's more entertaining when I get angry. It's more entertaining when I argue with my friends. It's more entertaining when something upsets me. If I see a good movie that I really like, that can fill maybe five to ten minutes of conversation. But if I see a movie that I despise, I can stretch that shit to 20, 25 minutes. Just listen to why is this a thing. (laughs) There's a reason we can spend an hour and a half talking about cats. And there's a reason why we only did an hour on, say, The Irishman. Anger... Badness makes for great radio. Um, so, look, 
when I talk about the Oscars, when I talk about the Golden Globes, when I talk about award season at large, I often get angry. Some of it is a show for this podcast, but often it is genuine frustration because I find the award show process to be a, a very flawed one. And I continue to pay attention to it because I love this stuff and I'm a movie nerd and I love show business and the Oscars are sort of the single event of the pop culture year and they have to be treated as such. Uh, But, you know, I'm looking at these awards this year. I'm looking at the list of nominees, which was released just Monday. And, uh, you know, I can get angry about it and I can go down the list of snubs and surprises as every entertainment publication is this week. My God, what a cliche, by the way. Oh, it just, what a fucking caustic idea that is. On top of the fact that it's a cliche. Because this is well-treaded territory. Everyone has a list of snubs and surprises. And they're all the same. There is not one unique snubs and surprises list on the internet. I dare you. Find me a snubs and surprises list that does not include Jennifer Lopez, Greta Gerwig, and Robert De Niro. Find me one. It's the same five names. Enough of your snubs and surprises. But actually, this very idea highlights what's wrong with award season. This is all you need to know. The whole concept of snubs and surprises highlights something that I've thought for many years now, which is the Oscars are an arbitrary list of movies that exist to be complained about. That is their entire purpose. When you use the word snub, and that is the first thing you write about once the Oscars are released, go to any entertainment publication, Variety, Deadline, uh, Hollywood Reporter, EW, they all have the same list of snubs and surprises. They are operating under the assumption that the Academy got it wrong. The first thing they write about is what mistakes were made. Without exception, there has never been a single year where Entertainment Weekly read the list of Oscar nominees and said, you know what? There weren't any snubs this year. You got it 100% right. But this is what we do. The Academy is the authority. They are the record. They are the canon. And we are here to rail against the consensus. And it's unfair And I realize the errors in my ways, and I will choose, maturely I might add, to abstain from this process this year. I'm stepping out. I'm not going to stop talking about the Oscars, but I'm going to stop talking about the Oscars in this particular way, which is to put the negative before the positive. Call me old Nikki Blue Skies this week, people. I'm looking on the brightest side of life, as Monty Python once said. Uh, I got to be honest. I looked at this list, and we can talk about the Joker thing. 11 nominees for Joker that leads the pack. Um, Yes, that is fucking ridiculous. (laughs) And that movie is nowhere close to the best movie of the year. And of course, Todd Phillips should not have been nominated for best director. But like... eh. It's better than Green Book. It's better than the King's Speech. It's better than the Artist. It's better than the Shape of Water. I don't know. I'm looking at this list. Here's the list of Best Picture nominees. Ford versus Ferrari. The Irishman. Jojo Rabbit. Joker. 
Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. I've seen all nine of these movies. I would only consider one of them to be bad. That's Jojo Rabbit. I did not enjoy that movie. I would consider Joker to be criminally overrated, but I wouldn't call it bad. And I would say something like Ford versus Ferrari is fairly paint by numbers, but uh, it's a very good version of that story. And I would watch Ford versus Ferrari a hundred times before Green Book. You know, (laughs) the rest of these movies, The Irishman, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time and Parasite, all in my top 10. And I think if any of them came out last year, they would be the best movie of last year. That's how strong Hollywood was this year. And I have a personal attachment to Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese. I detailed that on last week's show. We don't need to rehash that whole topic. Um, But aside from them, I thought Greta Gerwig did an unbelievable job with Little Women. I liked 1917. I didn't love 1917 as much as everyone else did. Uh, And we'll talk about that more on Movie Hall of Fame this week. But look, if Sam Mendes wins Best Director... I'm going to be okay with it. I'm fine with it. You know? I, I'm at that place. I know this was a quick turnaround from seven days ago. But yeah, all right. Give him another one. I, I'm fine with it. Parasite, six nominations? That is crazy. Best foreign film, best picture, best director, best screenplay, production design, cinematography. For a South Korean movie, how exciting. This is an awesome list of nominees. And if the best you can give me in terms of your snubs is Jennifer Lopez for Best Supporting Actor, De Niro for Best Actor, and Greta Gerwig for Best Director, if that's the most you got, I'm fine with it. Seriously, I'm all right with it. Obviously, Uncut Gems doesn't get a single nomination here. That is something that I accepted coming out of the Golden Globes. It got shut out of the Golden Globes as well. It became clear very early on this is not the type of movie the Academy will embrace. This is not the type of movie that people over the age of 75 will embrace. So uh, I just had to acknowledge this is a movie about a degenerate gambler and Adam Sandler's in it and it's directed by these two young New Yorkers and it's an anxiety trip and it's edgy and the music is very urban and, uh, you know, Kevin Garnett's in the movie. And I accept that this is not an Oscar bait film, and I would rather have it as my own little treasure than for it to become this mainstream, critically acclaimed thing. I want that movie reserved for the weirdos like me, who know what a lightning bed is. Uh, (laughs) I don't know, man. I just have this new lease on life all of a sudden. In the past seven days, I've gained this fresh outlook, this new set of eyes, and I've never seen things more clearly. It's really quite refreshing. It really is. (laughs) To just look at a list of Oscar nominees and be satisfied with it. You know, Uncut Gems is the only movie I would have included in that list uh, for Best Picture. There's nothing that I thought was criminally snubbed. There's nothing that was criminally overlooked. And I know some people don't feel that way, but I think part of that is faux outrage. That happens. I get it. It's the business that y'all are in, and you have to write your think pieces. The editor is on your ass, and you got to write 500 words about why Greta Gerwig is the next Francis Ford Coppola. 
And <laughs> look, I love Little Women. It, I have it in my top 10 as well. I think I have it at number six on my 2019 rankings. I'm very happy to see it in the best picture category. Uh, I probably would have nominated her for best director. I think I would have nominated Noah Baumbach first. Uh, but, you know, I, I look at the list of five and obviously Todd Phillips's name sticks out like a sore thumb, but everyone sort of agreed that Scorsese, Tarantino, Bong, and Sam Mendes would get nominated here. That that was indisputable. And no one would have made the argument for Greta Gerwig over any of those guys. Right? It's just the Todd Phillips thing. And so that final spot, you got Greta in the mix for it. You got Taika Waititi in the mix for it. You got Bombach in the mix for it. Uh, four out of five ain't bad. And I just, I say this all the time, but I, I really find the whole Oscars don't like women narrative to be exhausting and frankly counterproductive. 62 women were nominated across all 24 categories. That's an all-time record. And I know it sounds like I'm just towing the company line and I'm recycling the Academy's talking points, but that is progress. And the idea that one woman was left out of one particular category and that proves that the Oscars are a destructive patriarchy, it's just unconvincing to me. A lot more goes into filmmaking than just direction. There are production designers and casting directors and performers and screenwriters. And this year, more of those craftspeople were nominated and were women than ever before. You know, it's this whole French New Wave idea, this auteur theory that filmmaking is defined by the director. And I am responsible for this as much as anyone. When I talk about a new release, the first name I always mention is the director because they are the sole artist, the sole creative voice behind that story. Or at least it's perceived that way. In reality, a lot more goes into making a movie than just sitting in a director's chair, right? There are cinematographers and editors and sound engineers and writers and composers that are just as integral to the process. So to cite the one category as evidence for the Academy's sexism kind of shows a bias against the other categories. Rather than applauding the record 62 nominees... We're getting all butthurt about this one category of five men. Kind of just bothers me. I don't know. Rubs me the wrong way. Not so much in terms of the gender narrative, but in terms of the narrative around some of those quote unquote minor categories. We saw this last year with the Oscars when they almost put cinematography and editing during the commercial breaks, right? There seems to be a lack of recognition for some of those other art forms. And I get just as excited about the best editing Oscar as I do the best actress Oscar or the best director Oscar. And I kind of wish others felt the same way. Anyway, I love Greta Gerwig. I think she's an incredible talent, but relax. This was okay. Um, other than that, yeah. Cool, man. Cool. <laughs> I've seen most of these movies. This is a first for me. Normally, it takes me a while. Uh, and, and like the the weeks between the nominations announcement and the actual ceremony is, is crammed with uh, binge watching. And I have to catch up. I always watch all 10 of the Best Picture nominees. This year, I've seen them all already. Um, I've seen most of the performances as well. I need to watch Pain and Glory. 
for the Antonio Banderas performance. I'm actually excited about that. That is his first nomination uh, in the Best Actor category. I should probably watch Harriet. Cynthia uh, Cynthia Erivo uh, plays Harriet Tubman in that movie. I did see Judy this week, and I did not care for it. I think that's a pretty bad movie, actually. Um, (laughs) It's just so confusing. I talked about this last week, too. Renee Zellweger is going to win Best Actress, and it's a lock. All four of these categories seem like locks, and I'm puzzled. I'm very puzzled because no one saw Judy, and if you did see Judy, you probably fell asleep halfway through. But, okay, I guess that Oscar belongs to her. Um, I got to see Kathy Bates and Richard Jewell. She took J-Lo's spot. Man. (laughs) Cities will burn this week, by the way. Oh, you just know J-Lo nearly cut A-Rod's balls off the morning the Oscar nominations were announced. (laughs) Hell hath no fury like a Lopez scorned. Oh, I can't wait for the halftime show. A little fire under her belly. She's pissed about that. I I do feel like, you know, it's a fine performance. I think Hustlers is also kind of a boring movie. Um, And I I think, let's see. Florence Pugh definitely deserves a nomination. Dern definitely does. ScarJo and JoJo Rabbit, probably not. Margot Robbie, I actually would have nominated for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, not Bombshell. Um... But uh, I, she should be on here just for the entertainment value, right? She should be on here just so A-Rod and her can walk the red carpet together and talk to Ryan Seacrest. Um, <laughs> all right, whatever. Uh, anything else here? Uh, this movie in the, in the documentary category and foreign language film category, Honeyland. It's the first movie to be nominated in both categories. Apollo 11 was snubbed, quote unquote, in best documentary feature. I haven't seen it yet. I hear it's quite good. Too bad for that, I guess. No, seriously, I'm running down this list. The only thing that is egregious to me is the ridiculous number of Joker nominations. And I've said this many times before. I think that movie thinks it's way smarter than it actually is. And I think a lot of people that love that movie think they're smarter than they actually are. And I just hate movies like that. And I hate a movie that, uh, you know, claims to uh, know a thing or two about society and then just copies Taxi Driver for two hours and calls it art. Whatever, man. Beyonce not nominated in the original song category. Yeah, this is all cool. I'm cool with this, man. Here's uh, hoping once upon a time in Hollywood get some recognition on February 9th when the Academy Awards will be announced. Wow. February 9th, less than a month away. Amen. Hallelujah. Less than a month in this godforsaken award season. Good on you, Oscars, for moving that date up, by the way, because it has just gotten out of control. All right, I'll be here every step of the way talking about award season. Uh, And that's that. Let's take a break. When we come back, more cultured. Stick around. The Jeopardy Greatest of All Time tournament wrapped up last night in dramatic fashion. Game four of this potentially seven-game series was the clinching game. 13 million people watched last night. That's down just a tick 
from the 15 million that watched Game 3 last week, but still the highest rated program of the night and a huge ratings win for ABC, which lately has invested heavily in game shows. Celebrity Family Feud, Match Game, $100,000 Pyramid, Card Sharks, Pressure Luck. They just announced a reboot of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Supermarket Sweep hosted by Leslie Jones. Yes, that show is coming back. AVC has gone all in on the genre and they have been rewarded handsomely for it. People really cared about this greatest of all time tournament and that was just phenomenal to see. I uh, am a game show super fan, have been since I was a child. I've talked about this many times on the podcast before. My dream job growing up was to be the host of Family Feud. Um, That dream has not changed, although it has become less likely, I would say, (laughs) over time. Um, But to see game shows be the center of water cooler conversation, and this was the case when James Holtower went on that run last year, was just super special. Uh, And when I heard about this tournament, I was hoping that it would look something like this, and it certainly did. I think everyone wanted it to go seven games. I think everyone wished that Brad Rutter in the third spot would have put up a little more of a fight. He did not. It was unfortunate to see. And Ken Jennings... In a hard-fought battle with James Holtzauer, wins the series three games to one. Funny enough, going into the series, I didn't really know what to expect. I almost put some money down in Vegas, and I decided not to. Ken would have been my third guess to win this thing. And I know that sounds strange, uh, because the guy had a 74-game winning streak 15 years ago and was like the first Jeopardy celebrity contestant, and everyone just assumes he's the best player. Um, but like Brad beat him three times over Brad returned for three series as did Ken after their initial runs and Brad won every single time Brad has never lost to a human contestant on Jeopardy before he only lost to IBM's Watson the supercomputer so like I thought going into it James was probably the favorite because he was the youngest we had not seen him compete against these guys before um but but he looked like this insurmountable machine of a player. And, uh, you know, you just assume if LeBron James plays Michael Jordan, LeBron is going to win because it's, I don't know, recency bias. Athletes get better over time. Babe Ruth, more likely than not, would not be able to compete in today's MLB, right? So you just assume "Ah, these guys are 10, 15 years older. They're a little slower than they once were. Uh, So yeah, I think Ken would have probably been my third guess. Brad... I would have, uh, I don't know if I would have picked him, but I would have called him a, an underdog or, or, a, or a live dog, I should say. Uh, had some sleeper potential. But Ken just unleashed this dominant performance this week. From the buzzer to the daily doubles, to the betting strategy, to the final Jeopardy round, every facet of the game was perfect. And he needed to be perfect in order to beat James, who was hot on his tail, and even last night made it interesting till the final moment. Um, I've not only never seen that out of Ken Jennings before, but I've never seen that out of any contestant on Jeopardy before. It was true dominance in every phase of the game. Uh, and I just want to see this tournament a hundred times over. I can't help but feel unsatisfied. I wanted to see more of a challenge. I wanted to see these guys continue to play. Uh, not Brad. I could have done without Brad. Um, but he just dug deep to this other level. And you could tell he was more prepared than the other two guys were. He had practiced the buzzer strategy more. Um, his timing was impeccable. 
He rang in often uh, much earlier than the other two contestants, and that gave him the slight edge when it came to finding those daily doubles. Obviously, James has a similar wealth of information and knowledge, um, but Ken has the little things. He has the intangibles, as it were, and uh, it was just awesome, 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 awesome television. That episode of Jeopardy last night was not only the best episode of Jeopardy I've ever watched, but it's the best episode of any game show I've ever watched in my life. It was true drama through and through. Ken goes all in on the first final Jeopardy round, doubles his score, goes up 15 grand. Actually, no, goes up 30 grand on James, which means James needed to be up an additional 15 grand going into the next final Jeopardy round in order to close the gap. Ken finds the first daily double. Ken finds the second daily double. And James, out of nowhere, just bulldozes through the clues, amasses $20,000, finds the final daily double, And in this stressful moment, like one of the most anxiety-inducing moments I've ever seen in any sport, gets the question right, what is Chad? Uh, That moment is just going to live on in my head forever. Obviously, he's not able to seal the deal, gets the final Jeopardy question wrong. A question about Shakespeare, ironically enough, when James ended his run on his initial episodes on Jeopardy, he lost to Emma Betcher on a Shakespeare question. So such fitting poetry to cap off James's run this time. I think Ken said in some post-game interviews and on Twitter that James is such a dominant Jeopardy player that when him and Brad returned to the show, they had to adopt his strategy in order to beat him. Um, and, you know, in many ways that is true. I think Ken proved that he's a slightly better player And I think he proved that he's more naturally gifted and there's a reason why he won 74 games in a row and James couldn't quite get to 30. But there is something to be said for James making his competitors better players themselves. The great ones are able to elevate the competition. The great ones change the game and their impact and their legacy is felt whether or not they're playing. Um, The game's never going to be the same. And it's so exciting. And it's even more exciting to see Jeopardy talked about in this way, like a sport, like a genuine competition, because it is at this point, right? Jeopardy is more popular now, 37 years into its run, than it's ever been. I don't know how that's possible with changing television viewing habits, with streaming media, replacing network television. Somehow this syndicated daytime game show is a dominant cultural force. That somehow beats the World Series and the NBA Finals in the ratings. Uh, <laughs> I cannot explain it, but I'm so happy. I, I am so satisfied with what the show has become. You know, oftentimes game shows like, I don't know, Deal or No Deal, The Price is Right, all shows that I love to watch, uh, tend to put the glitz and the glamour ahead of the game. I mean, that is the nature of game shows. They are shot on sound stages. There are a lot of flashing lights. There are a lot of buttons that make funny sounds. The floors often illuminate. You sometimes put the superficial before the machinations of the game. And Jeopardy over the years has trusted its audience, has trusted the viewership in the way that something like Wheel of Fortune has not to understand the game. To not talk down to the viewer. To not make the questions purposely easy so the audience can play along. 
Can Brad James have clearly studied this game intently? And most Jeopardy contestants at this point have studied the game intently, so they know how much to bet going into Final Jeopardy, where you should search for the daily double clues, how much you should bet if you're up by a certain dollar amount. That's awesome. Let this be a lesson to other television creators. You win when you trust your product, and you win when you trust the audience to keep up. Jeopardy. No sign of slowing down soon. Let's take another break. There's a lightning round. After this, it's cultured. Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, just nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, is being developed as an HBO television series from both Bong and Adam McKay, producer of Succession, director of The Big Short, collaborator of Will Ferrell. Uh, Parasite coming to television. Is there nothing the IP gods won't touch? Enough, man. (laughs) Must every hit film, or actually, must every modestly enjoyed film be mined for intellectual property? What the hell? I love Bong Joon-ho. I trust that guy. I I enjoy his work as a director, and if he is intimately involved with this project, I'm sure it will be relatively good. But man, (laughs) this is proof that there is too much content on television. There's too much. You know what I saw the other day? There's a, uh, there's, this is so ridiculous. (laughs) There is a television series based on the Robert Redford film, Three Days of the Condor, and it airs on, like, epics. Where the hell does that thing air? Uh, hold on. Uh, Let's see. Condor. Hang on. Let me just look this up real quick. It's it's like either DirecTV or AT&T. I can't even find out where this thing airs on a... a I'm Googling it. I can't find it. Yeah, it's called Condor. It's based on the film Three Days of the Condor from the 70s. Okay, it's on the AT&T Audience Network, which I guess is a direct TV thing. I saw that. I saw that they're developing a Fugitive series, a reboot of the original series, and I guess uh, a sequel of sorts to the Harrison Ford movie. It's coming to the streaming service Quibi, which has... (laughs) Which has yet to launch. It's uh, like 10 minute episodes of TV shows. Um, Yeah, there's too much television. Everything is being mined for intellectual content. Oh, this was another one. Oh, this one was fun. So Mad About You, the Paul Reiser NBC show. My mom and dad used to love that show in the 90s. Used to air it before Seinfeld. Mad About You, Helen Hunt, Paul Reiser... They are making the show for something called Spectrum Originals. Spectrum Cable. Mad About You. Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt are back as Paul and Jamie Buchanan in a new Mad About You limited series event exclusively on Spectrum Originals. Jesus Christ. I saw a study. There were like 527 original series, scripted original series on television this year. That number is only going to grow in 2020. What the hell? Who saw Parasite and thought, yeah, 
it's good, but I would really prefer it as a prestige miniseries on HBO. <laughs> let movies be movies. Let TV be TV and let movies be movies. Mad about you? I mean, shouldn't that be news? Shouldn't NBC have that shit? Shouldn't it be on Peacock? Spectrum Originals? Who's watching that? This is what I want to know. Is that profitable for anyone? Because they have to pay Helen Hunt like $10 million probably for that, right? Maybe less. I mean, I don't know. What is Paul Reiser working for these days? Does he work for scale? Like, if we're getting the gang back together for Mad About You, why is it on a on an obscure cable service? Whatever. <laughs> too much TV. That's my take. I promise to be positive today. I'm going to stop that. Speaking of too much TV, FX on Hulu is coming. FX, evidently, uh, because they have uh, been uh, roped into the Disney Corporation after the Disney Fox merger, FX, the network, is now under the Disney umbrella, which means that their content will be available on Hulu, which Disney also owns a majority stake in. Uh, yes, the end of the world is quickly approaching, ladies and gentlemen. So now FX on Hulu is the new thing. The FX streaming service, whatever it was called, FX Plus, is no more. Now all of their series, including new shows like Fargo, Devs, the new Alex Garland miniseries, and this new Cate Blanchett feminist show. What is it? Miss America? I should really look these things up ahead of time, shouldn't I? <laughs> Mrs. America. Yes. Cate Blanchett stars as a conservative woman fighting against liber- uh, uh, women's liberation. Sarah Paulson is in it, as well as John Slattery, Margot Martindale, Tracy Ullman. Uh, Elizabeth Banks. <laughs> That's going to be available on FX on Hulu. This, to me, does seem significant. Um, FX has always been the sort of black label of television. I think HBO traditionally has always been the most prestige of the prestige. But FX is like a step beneath that. And they're a step above, say, AMC and Showtime. FX has always had a fair amount of quality assurance. Atlanta is on that network. Louie was on that network. Better Things is on that network. And obviously shows like Fargo, The Americans, all FX shows. Um, Yeah, I think this is actually a pretty big deal. I think this is going to work out pretty well for the Disney Corporation. Um, (laughs) Because things always work out well for the Disney Corporation. Um, FX has an impressive library of originals. And I've always thought those originals would do well on a streaming service. They're very bingeable. Shows like Atlanta, you could just bang out in two days. And one of the miscalculations that FX has made over the years, in my opinion at least, is that their shows are not so readily available on streaming services. I think the first season of Atlanta was on Hulu about a year and a half after it it hit the air. Um, I had a hard time finding old seasons of Fargo when I looked for them. The FX service always confused me because the more recent episodes of the shows were on there, but the original seasons were not. So this is actually a a very good idea. And FX is a brand name that, uh, you know, serious television watchers have learned to trust over the years. They've built up a lot of customer loyalty. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like on the Hulu app. Who knows if it's going to be its own section 
or the, the shows are just going to fit right into the other Hulu originals. I don't know. I, I would not be uh, so trigger happy to get rid of the FX label altogether. You know, I would want to maintain that black label because it means a lot um, in, in terms of quality there. So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about devs. I'm excited about Mrs. America. Uh, I'm excited about Fargo with Chris Rock. Season four coming up. One of my favorite shows ever. Finally back on the air. Yeah, turns out Disney knows what the hell they're doing. <laughs> FX on Hulu around the corner. The Oscars will not have a host this year. Should have talked about this earlier, actually. Uh, that's what they did last year. It worked out pretty well for them. Ratings were slightly up. It was a fairly lean show. Not a lot of filler. Not a lot of BS. Just a bunch of awards and a bunch of speeches. That's what we want. That's what we continue to want. Unless you're going to hire Ricky Gervais, keep a host out of the equation. Speaking of hosts, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, returning to the Golden Globes next year. Seems like a premature announcement, if you ask me. Seems like an overreaction to the Ricky Gervais thing. Uh, NBC is riding this wave of glowing reviews for Ricky. Uh, And so now, hey, here's some other people that you love who can make you laugh. If we get anything to the level of their George Clooney joke from a few years ago, I am all in on Tina and Amy. Remember that joke? (laughs) Gravity is a movie about how George Clooney would rather die in outer space than spend time with a woman his age. Yeah, that's about right. Great joke. Tina, Amy, Golden Globes, award season. Isn't it fun? Uh, Billie Eilish is doing the new Bond song. Perfect. Yeah, that sounds about right. I kind of prefer it when the British people do the Bond song. Adele, Paul McCartney, Sam Smith. However, I do like Jack White's song a lot with Alicia Keys. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually think that that's the perfect... That's the perfect artist for this. Yes, I am in. I co-signed the Billie Eilish or Elish. How do you pronounce her damn last name? Someone please clarify this for me. I've heard it Eilish. I've heard it Elish. I like Elish better. I don't know. Do you pronounce the E or the I when the E comes before the I? Yeah, foreigners confuse me. Damn foreigners. Learn how to spell your last name or get out of here. It's America. We pronounce Eilish Elish. Sorry. <laughs> CBS is working on a spinoff of Silence of the Lambs. It's called Clarice. It stars a young Clarice Starling. Uh, why not just bring Hannibal back? CBS. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Uh, I'm out. I'm out on Clarice. I'm out on that. Hannibal's amazing, y'all. Y'all, if you haven't watched Hannibal, do yourself a favor. That's got to be available somewhere, right? It's probably on Netflix or something. Maybe Hulu. Hannibal. (laughs) Mads Mikkelsen. So good. Such a gory show for NBC television. Underrated, man. Three seasons it lasted. Should have lasted like seven. The best. Um, oh, and finally, here we go. Rest in peace, Buck Henry. Hollywood icon, I would say. Or at least among people that know him. Co-created Get Smart. Wrote Heaven Can Wait. I shouldn't know. Didn't he direct Heaven Can Wait? 
and he wrote The Graduate. Buck Henry, just a comedy legend. Catch-22, he also wrote. One of those guys, when you tell the story of American comedy, he's not one of the first names you think of. You know, you think of guys like Mark Twain or Richard Pryor or Lenny Bruce. And uh, you forget guys like Buck Henry, who I think spoke for an entire generation in his comedy. Uh, The Graduate is one of those like generation defining movies. And the script is a big part of that. Obviously, Mike Nichols did an incredible job directing and Dustin Hoffman gave an iconic performance. But that movie is nothing without that script. It's so funny and lively and prescient. And it's one of those movies that you still watch it in 2019, 50 years after its initial release, and it still means something to you. Like if you graduated from college or even if you graduated high school or you're just a loser that's having a hard time finding his way in the world, as I often feel sometimes, um, that movie will just move you in ways that you didn't think was possible for a movie that came out in 1967. Uh, Buck Henry absolute Hollywood icon. I would recommend revisiting some of his work. If you haven't seen The Graduate, you need to. Um, It's one of those movies you have to watch before you die. And it's just destined to become one of your favorites. I know it's one of mine. uh, And I don't think I've ever spoken to a single person that didn't get down to The Graduate. So damn good. What a talent. Buck Henry, rest in peace. And that's going to do it. That's going to do it for another episode of Cultured. Look at that. Under 45 minutes today. I got you in. I got you out. Gave you all the takes. Leave them wanting more, as they say. Right? Leave them wanting more. Uh, I love you so very, very much. Please go to the website, tmt.media, too many thoughts media.com. Me, Adam, Nick, and all of Nick's buddies over at the Fantasy Book of the Month are uh, are toiling away this month, giving you the content you can use and abuse. Uh, Adam and I will be doing a movie hall of fame tomorrow about the films of 2009. Check that out if you are so inclined. We'll also be talking about 1917 because I have some thoughts on that. I know Adam loved that movie. Why Is This a Thing is available just today. We released our review of 200 Cigarettes. It's a movie from 1999 about New Year's. That was buried, and it stars uh, Paul Rudd and (laughs) Ben Affleck, Casey Affleck, Jay Moore. um... (laughs) For some reason, Courtney loves in it. I don't know why. She's not very good in it. None of the the, the movie is particularly good. Dave Chappelle's in this shit. We're going to do it as both a celebration of the new year and a celebration of our 200th episode. But wouldn't you know it, us being idiots, we recorded it two weeks after New Year's and on episode 202, two episodes too late. But it was a fun podcast nonetheless. Uh, Listen to that on the website. And I will be doing an eco show this week. It's becoming a running gag. It is like Jimmy Kimmel uh, snubbing Matt Damon at the end of every episode. But I promise I'm doing an eco show this week. Pinky promise. And no, I'm not crossing my fingers behind my back. It's going to happen. Fantasy Book of the Month, Nostalgia Plus. If you haven't read my end of the year uh, blog post, by the way, my top 100 films of the 2010s, top 10 TV shows, and top 10 albums, uh, I, I would appreciate if you did read those. Uh, a lot of people did, and a lot of people gave me some some positive feedback, and that is awesome to see. Uh, I spent a lot of time on that. And I don't write for the website all that much. I spend most of my time talking. So anytime that I do write, 
uh, I want to make it good and I want to make it count. And I uh, certainly would appreciate each and every click. So go to the website for that as well. You're the best. Please come back to me because you know what happens next week. You and I, we get culture! Bye-bye.